The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Rachel Callender's daughter Evie was born with a rare chromosomal disorder, she was told she wouldn't walk, talk, or eat solid food. The doctor said her condition was incompatible with life. Callender's own experience of her daughter was quite different. She said Evie made her stronger, taught her to celebrate life more intentionally, and to have a bigger and more open-hearted view of humanity. When Evie died at age two and a half, Callender, a photographer, traveled across New Zealand to photograph other children with genetic disorders in the Superpower Baby Project, an award-winning book of photography of children with genetic disorders. She has also built on her own experience as a new mother to work with doctors and other healthcare professionals to help them become more effective communicators with patients and learn how to use language that empowers rather than alienates them. We spoke to Calendar about her life with Evie, the Superpower Baby Project, and what doctors need to know about talking to patients and their parents. Rachel, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your daughter Evie, your work as a photographer, and, and your work as a patient advocate trying to improve the way doctors and other healthcare professionals communicate with patients. I think what unites your work, as with any good photograph, it's, it's about perception and, and changing the way people see the world. Perhaps we can start with what happened when Evie was born. When did you know there were problems and what were you told? We knew there were problems about six hours after she was born when we tried to feed Evie and she choked and she was rushed up to a neonatal intensive care unit and then I didn't hear about um, what had happened or what was going on until the next day and the doctor came and told us that she had a very rare chromosome condition um, they thought she had Edwards syndrome or trisomy 18 and they told us that Evie's condition was incompatible with life, they told us that she had uh, dysmorphic features, uh, skeletal anomalies um, that she was failing to thrive, that she had um, ventricular septal defects, and that if she did survive, which was quite unlikely, there'd be severe mental retardation. So the language was very heavy and terrifying and negative and um, very confusing. I, I imagine 
in, in the fog of that moment, a, a lot of those words didn't even have meaning. No, no, they didn't. Um, especially the incompatible with life phrase, um, because, you know, she was here in the world. She was alive. And even though I, I knew that she was fragile, she was here. And I saw so much beauty and potential in her and um, so much love. And, and these words just didn't connect at all with me and it just added to the distress and the, the grief um, of what was being told to us at that time. And what was it like to care for her? Well, to be honest, as she grew, because she, she did grow, she was actually kind of easy. <laughs> like, her medical condition was terrifying a lot of the time. Um, and we ended up in the hospital a lot and in ambulances and things. But she was uh, a really easygoing, relaxed, and very calm baby. It's like she she just understood everything and she just took it all in her stride. She had incredible strength and bravery. And I just responded to her um, with so much, I guess, admiration and um I saw so much courage in her, so she was she was quite fun actually. I I loved that because of who she was. She allowed us a life of complete freedom. You know, I didn't have to follow any of the traditional rules of parenting. You know, I didn't have to worry about getting into her. I mean, getting her into a school or a kindergarten or worrying about structures and systems. I could just live each day. Um, in the moment with her and let her lead and guide me. It was beautiful. When you were first told of her condition, I, I know you've talked about having the sense that you were going to lose that on, on experiences that you expected. How, how did that change yeah. for you? I think I just, I realized that um, because of who she was, I was experiencing other experiences that I didn't expect and I found so much joy in them. So I did grieve the loss of the experiences I did expect, you know, like her speaking to me or, or going to school or reading a book or riding a bike, you know, just little things like that. But I discovered so much about her that she loved that I thrived on learning. So she loved being on a beanbag and would just giggle and laugh and we made up games together, and even though she didn't speak, we can we could communicate really deeply, and um, there was just so much joy uh, that I discovered in finding the things that she loved doing. So that's how I, I coped with her. I guess I found other experiences to enjoy. Evie inspired the idea for your book of photography about children born with chromosomal disorders. What did you hope to accomplish with that book? I guess the main hope was to celebrate awesomeness and diversity and ability, um, to give a new language to disability. Uh, it's very subtractive and very negative. Uh, there's a lot of this kind of mentality around disability. There's a lot of focus on all the things that a person can't do. And so this book was, um, at its heart, was to challenge that language and that mentality and to celebrate ability and uniqueness and humanity and, and all people, no matter what they look like, no matter what they um, are doing, there's so much diversity that I think we, we miss out on because we're afraid of difference. So, so this book was um, my attempt to encourage people to look a little deeper into humanity and find the beauty. 
and you called the book the super baby the superpower baby project why did you come to use the term superpower uh, it was because I actually believed that Evie had an electromagnetic sensitivity, kind of like a baby magneto of X-Men or something like that, <laughs> uh, because I noticed that every time we uh, went through electric lighting doors or we drove under electrical pylons, she'd start crying, um, and it was like a little switch would just connect with her brain or something um, and would pass through these magnetic fields, and then she'd stop crying. And it just happened so frequently that I thought, goodness, I can't think of any other explanation for this kind of phenomenon, so maybe she's just got superpowers. And then I realized, actually, it's more profound than I realized, because everything she was teaching me and those around her was really deep. You know, she was bringing out a depth of love in me that I never expected, and she she allowed me to become a very strong and capable mother in ways I never thought I would be able to handle and and just little things like she expressed her happiness with her entire body and um, she was so pure and so full of joy um, and she taught me unconditional love and perseverance and kindness and I thought you know these are some of humanity's highest ideals and the things that the world needs most and I think these are actually superpowers and need to be celebrated. One of the things you speak about is communication between patients and healthcare providers. This grows out of your own experience. When you first learned that Evie had a genetic condition, you had a hard time following the doctor who was talking about Evie's short arms. What happened, oh, yeah. and how do you look back at that exchange? Oh, now I can laugh about it because um, he was trying to explain to me Evie's condition because uh, it turned out that she didn't have Edward syndrome or trisomy 18. But um, an even rarer translocation, um, and it had been triggered by uh, my own translocation that I didn't know about. And so he was explaining that, you know, this has come from me, and this is how chromosomes work. And he was talking about the long and the short arm of the chromosomes and the nature of them splitting. And I'd never even heard of chromosomes, to be honest, and I didn't really know what he was talking about. I was just trying to hold on to everything he was saying. And that's when I thought that he was telling me that Evie had short arms, and that's the only thing I could kind of hang on to. And so while he was busy telling me all of the stuff that went over my head, I was worrying about her short arms. And to me, you know, her, her arms were perfectly long-looking and quite beautiful, and I got all upset because I thought, well, what can they do about her arms? What are they going to do? How can, you, can you lengthen them? I don't know, like medically, surely her arms are okay. And so I got myself all in a panic and... And um, I ended up asking him at the end of his big spiel, you know, well, what are you going to do about Evie's arms? And he sort of just brushed me off and said, well, nothing, they're fine, and walked out the door. And so I was kind of left in this lost, confused puddle of emotion, and I decided then and there, you know, I actually hate this doctor because I feel stupid and small and insignificant, and it's not a nice feeling. I know you had a very different experience with a geneticist (laughs) who took the time to explain things to you. How did that interaction differ, and and what did that do for you? Well, he was so different. The very first thing he said to me when he sat me down, he's like, Rachel, tell me what you know about chromosomes. So immediately he's already establishing what my own health literacy is. You know, he's, he's not judging me. He's asking me, what do you already know, and then we'll go from there as a baseline. So my response to him was, you know what, 
I couldn't even draw you a chromosome. And so he said, all right, then, well, let's, let's do that first. And so he drew me a chromosome, and as he was drawing, he was explaining a few things. And within 10 seconds, I could see exactly what the other doctor was trying to explain. I could see the long and the short arm of the chromosome, and I'm like, oh, there it is. I can see it. Now. I get it. You know, and that was really exciting when I felt like I understood. My understanding and knowledge is really empowering, and when there's so much uncertainty, it just creates more fear and anxiousness and then anger and frustration and a sense of mistrust. So this is the space that I'm working in now is to encourage health professionals to very quickly ensure that they're not doing more damage in that very fragile space of a lot of emotion and fear. So I'm helping them with their communication style to make sure that they're more like that geneticist that spoke to me, you know, that um, can come alongside a parent exactly where they need to be met and then go from there with their communication. So it's as empowering and as respectful as possible. One of the things you'd like to change is what you call the language of disability. Can you explain yeah. what you mean by that and what you'd like to change? Well, especially in the medical world, uh, if anything is a little bit differing from the straight down the line normal, the words are abnormal, defective, disabled, retarded, um, diseased. They're, they're very negative deficit words and I think they actually take potential and ability away especially when a parent is receiving a diagnosis of their child, these are the words that are used again and again and again um, for a per to describe a person. And then I think if the language isn't changed or if there isn't a balance, then that child grows up with this language on top of them their whole life. And I think that there's a danger of them thinking that that's their identity. And when a person thinks their identity is abnormal and defective and retarded, then that's really damaging for them as a person. So I would like to see uh, new ways of these words um, being used that doesn't um, that doesn't destroy the person's humanity. So instead of using a phrase like uh, incompatible with life, which is I think is horrendous, <laughs> a word a phrase like life limiting. Uh, then life is the focus. Um, or if abnormal, I think, is, is quite subtractive. And I, I prefer anomaly because it's kind of like, it's not judgmental. There's, there's a, a kind of a quirkiness or a uniqueness that can be derived from that kind of word. So it's just about considering the words that we're using, especially when a person um, could potentially derive their identity from such... Um, negative words, I think that's not okay. What would you like doctors to understand about the effects that negative and, and positive jargon can have on patients and, and their families? Well, I think that the, the language and the positive and negative jargon, it has a huge impact. I think it actually um, it kind of sets up a person to navigate their future in a negative or a positive way, and it Language also can break down that crucial relationship between a health professional and a parent because if there isn't respect or trust and if, those, if the language used is negative and, and scary and, and misunderstood, then there isn't going to be that 
relationship and connection. And so the knowledge of the professional isn't going to be heard. And then the knowledge of the parent isn't going to be respected because the parents are actually the ones that become the, the complete experts in their children. But if that knowledge isn't being shared or respected, then I think the outcomes for the relationship of the health professional and the parent and then subsequently the child is reduced because I think we need to um, ensure that our communication is as effective and as positive as possible because there's so much diversity in the world and I think that needs to be celebrated and honestly, I I do believe that there shouldn't be such a thing as disability in the world um, and there wouldn't be if the world was uh, set up to enable humanity and all of its differences and um, and that that I think would be a pretty exciting place to get to. What would you like doctors to understand about effective communication with patients and parents? What what do you think doctors need to do to be effective communicators? I think they need to ask more questions. Uh, they need to talk less, ask more questions, um, and then tailor their communication to where a parent or a patient is at. So instead of just sort of rattling off all these big words and then leaving it at that, I think they need to ensure that whatever has been said has been understood. And if that means saying a few less words or adjusting their language to make sure it has been heard, um, then I think that means that a person's going to leave that room empowered to look after themselves better, and which means that they don't need to come into hospital so much and they don't need to see the doctor so much. And then they have got the strength and the knowledge to look after themselves in the best way possible. Rachel Callender, author, trainer, artist. You can meet Rachel and learn more about her work at this year's Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. Rachel, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Danny. Looking forward to seeing everyone. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.